This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Today's talk will be a debate on methods of constitutional interpretation between Professors Bode and Harrell, moderated by Professor McAdams. Uh, professor Bode, as I'm sure you all know, is the Neubauer Campy Assistant Professor of Law at the Law School. He teaches federal courts in constitutional law. His research interests include originalism, historical practice in constitutional law, and conflicts in law. Uh, and he blogs for SCOTUS Blog and the Bolo Conspiracy. Uh, professor Harrell is a visiting professor of law, uh, coming to us from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he is the Mizak Professor of Law. He teaches uh, philosophy of criminal law in the fall quarter. And his interests include constitutional law theory, legal and political theory, and human rights. Uh, Professor Pell is also the author of the book, Why Law Matters, which I think will be relevant for us today. Uh, and of course, uh, you all know Professor McAdams, who is the Meltzer Professor of Law, who teaches elements of the law and criminal law at the law school. Uh, so, no further ado, please give our speakers a warm round of applause. Okay, I was intimidated when I was asked to do this because I know very little about originalism. Originalism is an original invention of the American constitutional tradition. And um, there is no country in the world that uses originalism. As far as I know, there is no country in the world that uses originalist interpretation. And I think there are good reasons for this, and I try to uh, elaborate on that. Um, when we ask what does the Constitution do, we have two answers that I think are very important. One is the issue of legitimacy. What makes the provision legitimate? The other, I would say, is an instrumental consideration. We want a method of interpretation that will not only grant legitimacy to the system, but also that will generally yield good results. These are the two desiderata of um, um, a constitutional. And I'm trying to figure out why would the intention of an elite group of whites a few hundred years ago would grant legitimacy or would be relevant to what the right results are? Why should the intention of a very tiny group, as far as I understand, significantly less than 50% of the people who lived then, be relevant to us today and grant legitimacy? Even if there was a total majority, even if they didn't exclude blacks and, and, and women, and so on and so on. They lived, they lived in the 18th century. This was quite a, a while ago. Even I was not born. <laughs> so, now, I don't deny that the founding fathers were very smart guys. And I think the overall United States has done very exceptionally well relative to Europe and relative to other places, partly due to the clever intuition they had how to govern us. But with all due respect, what is responsible for the success is not only the founding fathers and what they say. It's the way it developed. It's the way it came about. Um, so I think, I think that it strikes me as neither legitimacy, nor instrumental consideration would support any kind of um, um, reliance on their intuitions, on their intentions. Their intentions are irrelevant in terms of legitimacy simply because they're not our intentions. I don't want them to govern me from their graves. Um, and they are irrelevant, I think, on instrumental ground, because although they were very smart, I think that there are very smart people now that have much better information as to how we should be governed. So I, I just don't see the, the reason. Now, the one way to support originalism, the way what's suggested by Will in a paper that he presented, is to say, look, I don't defend originalism as a general phenomenon that should be you know, applied everywhere. I defend originalism um, because judges and professors and the legal community and perhaps the civic community as a whole, in a way, accept it. And sometimes we have good reason to accept something simply because other people accept it. So we have very good reason sometimes to adapt and document because or method of interpretation, because they are used by individuals, because they are used by individuals all the time. So under this view, if the population agrees on interpreting the Constitution 
in light of astrological maps, or in light of the intention of Tutankhamun, or in light of the intentions of Napoleon, then there are good reasons to follow this, and perhaps there are. So sometimes the mere fact that people do something is a reason to continue to do something. To do so. so let's say that we all agree that we have to interpret the constitution in light of the intention of Tutankhamun. We want to interpret. Let's say he had some intentions with respect to the constitution, and we think he's a smart guy and was trying to do it. And we do it only because all of us agree. This is a good reason. We can agree on astrological math. This reduces transaction costs. It reduces conflict. All of these good things. I don't know if reducing conflict is a good thing, but um, but it does it does bring about. But I don't think this is a case with respect to originalism, because to the extent that I know something about the American constitutional context, originalism is the most con controversial, contested view. So you have living, uh, whatever, living tree, and a nice stem for it, uh, and you have originalism, and they fight against uh, each other, and they are often associated also with right or left for some other reason, I don't know why. Um, doesn't necessarily uh, have to be so. So to sum up, the reason to appeal to the intention of Framers is as strong as the reason to appeal to the intention of Tutankhamun or Napoleon. It is not surprising, in my view, that originally it is unique, and I think it's, um, it developed in the U.S. in a certain period and got some attention, but I think this, is, uh, this will phase out because it doesn't, have, it doesn't have any rationale. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. So I think uh, Professor Harrell and I agree about several things, right? So we both agree that uh, American constitutional law is different from constitutional law a lot of other places, so that originalism is, you know, there's something special about, about our practice. And that it's therefore important to think about things like, like the factors he started with, uh, legitimacy, what makes constitutional interpretation legitimate, and good results, what, you know, what actually will kind of work for us. Uh, but I guess I do think there are some very good reasons that originalism as practiced in American culture satisfies those criteria, maybe better than the alternatives. So I'll just sort of thought I'd lay them out. Um, so on legitimacy, and you heard some stuff about the dead hand that being governed by these very old dead white guys. So I guess the thing I want to say is all forms of judicial review, all forms of constitutional review, have some amount of dead hand to them. I mean, the very nature of judicial review is to set aside things that have been done by the executive branch or the legislative branch, who are the politically accountable branches. So that could lead you to think, as a matter of legitimacy, we should have no judicial review at all. That's some people's view. That's not my view. It's not Professor Harrell's view, as you'll learn if you buy and read his great book, Why Law Matters. <laughs> he, think, he believes in constitutional review, too. But once you have some sort of, once you have judges setting aside the decisions of the popular branches in the name of the Constitution, then we have the legitimacy question no matter what. The judges need some explanation for why these choices sort of made in the name of constitutional interpretation should control over the political branches. Originalism provides an answer to that question. So originalism says there were actually some choices made at the very beginning when we set up the structure, the very same document that says who is Congress, who is the President, who is the Supreme Court, contains limits on all the powers of all three of those branches. It contains rights that those branches can't transgress. So it's sort of a package deal. Uh, to have these political institutions is to have these limits on the, what the political institutions can do. And if you want to sign on to the document that set up the institutions, then you should sign on to whatever the limits were. And since the dead white guys, the framers, are the ones who created both the institutions and the limits, would want to know about their purposes and their intentions in doing so. Just the way you do in other kinds of law. Just the way when you have a contract, you care about the mutual shared intent of the parties. When you have a will, you care about the intent of the testator. When you have a statute, you care about the intent of Congress. You can fight a lot about the best ways to discern those intents and what to do when they're hard to find. But for all these legal instruments, we say the, the person who set up whatever the rule is, the institution, part of construing the rule is understanding their purposes. And that's particularly important when you're a judge and, you know, this constitutional interpretation is your only excuse or your only warrant for setting aside what the democratically uh, elected branches can do. Now, there's a little bit more to say about the legitimacy question. I, I think 
if our Constitution had been enacted at the time of the founding and frozen in amber for 225 or more years, some of the legitimacy questions would be would be really stark. But it's it's at least somewhat important that our constitutional document a has been amended over time in important ways that fixed some of the worst things about the founding document, uh, eliminating slavery, granting equal rights. The you know the document is in some sense a, an intergenerational written document, um, and it contains a certain amount of flexibility. So it doesn't. You know, there are constitutions in other countries that set things down with a great deal of minute particularity that list like specific, even so specific industries or specific rules apply to them or, or, or whatnot. Our constitution doesn't do that. It, it actually, it itself leaves a certain amount up to the political process. And that helps make it, uh, that helps make it legitimate too. Um, so when you take those two things, <clears throat> you take those two things, the sort of legitimacy concern the fact that the Constitution has been updated over time, uh, I think you have a, a less problematic document than you'd think. And then the last point, sort of about, about good results. Um, so other methods of interpretation, various forms of living constitutionalism or, or judge-made constitutionalism, you know, what they have in common is that the way the constitutional law changes is that judges decide to change it. Judges take whatever the original rules were and they update them in light of some set of normative considerations. This doesn't work as well. Uh, this is what we think would be better. Uh, and originalism makes a different choice about who gets to update constitutional meaning and how. Right? It says that updating itself is, is not in the hands of the judges. Either the document takes something and leaves it open to political dispute. So if it's something where the Constitution just lets the political branches go, that's, that's how things change. And if not, if there's like a hardwired provision, then that's what the amendment process is for. So originalism is the only method of interpretation that really sort of harnesses and, I don't know, honors the possibility of the constitutional text itself being amended outside the judicial process. So it's legitimate because of where it came from and how it can change. Uh, Greg, would you like to take one minute? Yeah. Uh, let me say two things. I mean, there were many important. We didn't coordinate it, so it was a surprise to me as it was a surprise to you. But, um, but um, I want to uh, say something about the comparison to contracts and will. In contracts and will, it is evident that we, typically what we are after is intention of the parties, because this is the intention of the document, is to give effect to the intentions of a party, irrespective of how good they are. And so I don't think this is a, a, a good analogy. Um, I'll also say something about the concept, um, I mean, I use the term dead hand, I think I use the term dead hand, um, and, and, and uh, will say it rightly uh, that, um, that it's, there is always dead hand. There is always dead hand also in regular statutory uh, statutes. Yeah? There are people, you know, the statutes that were enacted and, you know, the people who enacted them are not there anymore. I agree. But I think the larger the gap between the uh, timing in which the um, uh, provision were enacted and our times, the less legitimacy it has and the less power we have. Now, of course, we, they do control us from, our, from their graves, as is often used um, in other contexts to say, you know, equity. Um, but, but, but they do control us from their graves. But the question is how extensive should this control be? And we want them to control us dictatorially. And I want to mitigate slightly their um, uh, control from the control of the founding fathers from there. Thank you. So I, I wanted to ask a, a question that I, I guess I, I guess these will really be about originalism. Um, you know, one point. Uh, one point is I just uh, well I wonder uh, you know you started out making it sound like this is you, you, you maybe there's no tension between your views and the fact that no other country apparently uses originalism. But, I, but then when I listened to what you had to say about legitimacy and good results, I thought, well, then it should follow that lots of countries, I mean, I know their constitutions are different. Maybe if their constitutions are highly specific, then it doesn't matter. Um, but I would think that it's, it's still kind of a weakness or a surprise for you if there are no other countries that use it. I'm also sort of puzzled why we don't see constitutions actually specify the means of interpreting them, that would seem to be uh, an advantage and, and uh, 
you know, and I assume if you had one that said, you know, use originalism, that you would, you would be okay along with using originalism. You wouldn't vote for the Constitution, but once you said that, you would, you would do. The second thing I want to say is about contract. I guess somewhat in disagreement. I, I, thought, I thought it was okay to use the analogy, but that a contract differs from, I think, wills and statutes, and that wills and statutes are kind of, you know, one-time events, I think, that whereas a contract is something the parties might perform for a very long time. But if you're going to use the contract analogy, that seems more applicable to me because the Constitution is being applied, it's being interpreted, it's, being, it's affecting government for a long time. But if in a contract you had two parties who had a 30-year supply contract, and after 15 years they've been doing a practice that is clearly inconsistent with the original understanding we would apply the practice, not the original understanding. And that would seem to be how we get good results. As we, and so, you know, I think about some of the, like the recess appointments case, uh, where, you know, Scalia says in dissent, you know, um, is this a, uh, what, it, what he tried to make fun of this idea that the practice of recess appointments having gone a certain way for a long time in a bipartisan way, somehow, a, a, somehow determine what power the president had. He said, it's just like an adverse possession theory constitution. And I don't think, yeah, it is. That, that is a great theory of the constitution. If the practice goes in a certain way for a long time and people get along, then why would you try to upset it by saying, let, upset the apple cart by saying, let's, let's consider what they originally intended 200 years and some years ago. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it seems less like a contract at that point. So I think the four, both the four-end constitutions point and the the private law analogies are interesting. So let's let's on four-end constitutions. I guess I, I I do think this is right that this is to think about why are other why are other constitutions different? Why are they interpreted differently? Should that cause us to reflect on our practices and think maybe we're missing something? Um, I mean I think a lot of that's a lot of that's true. But a, f- a few thoughts. So one is that. Figuring out to what extent other countries do or don't have what we call originalism is actually very complicated and tricky because it depends a lot of the time on what exactly you mean. So one trait originalism has is this idea that when the text is really, really clear, uh, sort of like even on its face, that it just speaks to something and it doesn't matter how silly we think it is. Like the president has to be 35 years old or we have this electoral college that's really clunky and you know so on. That idea is, is not universal, but is much more common. There are lots of countries with, who wouldn't call themselves originalist by any stretch, but would say, yeah, when the text of our constitution is really clear, we stick to that. So, so that, I mean, there is that. Then within the realm of these provisions that have more play in the joints, what it is you use to give play in the joints or, or you know, how you find it, I think that's something there's more variance on. Uh, and you'd expect to find variance because it depends to some extent on the Constitution itself, to what extent does it intend to leave things up to future generations or not? Judges, what are the roles of judges in different societies? To what extent are they seen as having these accountability and legitimacy problems or not? And on the legal culture, what are the background rules for legal interpretation in other contexts? This gets a little bit to our next question. You know, how are statutes interpreted? How, what's the kind of other background legal stuff? So, so I'm not totally troubled by the, or totally shocked by the variance, but but I will say this is the thing I, I think about a lot, and I think that when you have a really some of the really hardcore originalists who think things like uh, originalism should always control even when the text is somewhat ambiguous and even when there's a precedent or practice to the contrary, I do think actually the fact that no other country in the world would do that, and even we don't do that all the time, gives me some pause. Um, so contracts, statutes, wills, I mean, there's, there's a lot to play out in these examples. I mean, it's interesting that you put statutes in the, exam, in the one-time example, because there's a sense in which statutes are also enacted for a long time. We have courses of performance. We sometimes amend them. We sometimes don't. Um, so, so I think that, that, that's why the analogies are a little bit tricky to, to think about. Um, as to contracts and courses of performance, uh, first of all, I do think that courses of performance are consistent, should be relevant to the Constitution and should be part of constitutional meaning. I would say, I mean, so I would say when the text is really clear, even a course of performance to the contrary shouldn't necessarily cut against it, but to the extent we have ambiguities in the terms, that the course of performance of, of what's happened since should, should get a lot of weight, maybe even dispositive weight. 
Now, why? So, why? Why is that a little bit less force for courses of performance than contracts have? One reason is you think about who are the parties. So, in a contract between two people, like they're the ones who it's their rules. So, to some extent, if they want to rewrite the rules through their practice rather than their rather than explicitly, it's up to them. Like it's their sort of sovereignty. The Constitution is not doesn't just belong to the. When we talk about a course of performance in the constitutional context, we usually mean the the branches of government. And the Constitution isn't theirs in the same way. Like They are the agents, at least the constitutional theory, the democratic theory, is they are the agents of, of us uh, who elect them, who pick them, who have the power to govern them through rules. And so to say that their course of performance can rewrite our rules is to give them sort of more authority, is to sort of treat them as if they were the authors of the whole system. And that's what the court said in the separation of powers cases the court has, or the federalism cases, where it sometimes sides with Justice Scalia's view to say, you know, it doesn't matter if the provision's been violated over and over again. One of the things it will say is, well, the, the separation of powers rules don't just belong to the president and Congress. They aren't just theirs to kind of wave when they want to. Now, it's inconsistent about that, but when it sounds that flag, that's sort of the idea. Uh, so I think it's interesting that Justice Scalia goes to adverse possession rather than contracts and courses of performance. <laughs> Adverse possession works even without the consent of the other side. Uh, you know, I mean, it allows you to take something, uh, which is a little bit different than two parties agreeing to give it back. Call second response, which is um, personal performance between two, say, corporations. They would be bound by their agents. You know, you would say, well, it's with the corporation's contract, not the agent's contract. But we would, we would assume that that corporations acquiesce for a long period of time, they would be bound by what their agents did. So if the American people acquiesce for decade after decade in uh, something about the president's recess appointments, it seems like that's that's the course of performance. That's what it means now. Okay. Um, I want to say something about the fact that um, other constitutions do not include it. This gives me also a pause on the opposite direction. Because I don't know very well the American Constitution, I know somewhat better other constitutions, and maybe I'm, you know, taking my kind of hinges from, or, or what is, seems to be reasonable from the mere existence of other constitutions that don't take it. So this is something that ought to warn me as well as as will I think. Um, the other point with respect to uh, contracts, it's a very simple point. I, I don't think human beings, by contracting, can bind other human beings. I don't think that um, um, that uh, if uh, I don't know my grandfather contracted that in this particular house there will not be uh, wine or alcohol, for instance, this binds his, uh, the people who come after it. The limits to the degree to which people can control the, um, what is going on uh, behind the, and I, I say something that I think is incredibly deep difference between the way I regard constitution and the way constitution are perceived in the US. I think in constitution are perceived in the US, the normative weight of constitution is our consent. Is the fact that, you know, whatever it is, assemblies and they make decisions and so on and so on. I don't think that constitution can gain consent can, I'm sorry, can gain legitimacy or uh, can be useful through consent. I think that if somehow um, a constitution landed from the sky, there was no referendum, nothing whatsoever, we started for some reason following its dictates, even though we never consented to them. But eminent people started and other people joined in and so on and so on, and it works well and we do it as it is. Then the mere fact that it's going well, it's going, it's effective, it's, it's, um, there's a set of practices, a set of values embodied in these practices. These set of practices bring about um, stability and, um, and prosperity and so on and so on. Excellent constitution. I don't need any consent. I don't need to think about the intention of the person who threw this document from the sky. Uh, I just couldn't care less about it. I care about the fact that the constitution works. And I think that what makes, what triggers legitimacy and what triggers the rightness of the decisions is, has nothing to do with the fact that some bunch of people came together in um, the 18th century and did all sorts of things, just irrelevant to this. 
It's a fact that it works. It's a fact that it brings about right results. It's a fact that people feel comfortable with it. It's a fact that its results are just, and so on and so on, that it should make it. So, uh... I'm in sympathy with a lot of that, actually. So, I, and I this is, well, so, <laughs> it's okay. It's a judo move. It's a throw at the end. <laughs> so, I think it's right. You know, if 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 it if it really works, if there's really a kind of universal course of performance uh, by everybody, and and some totally non-originalist sort of modern system that, that really, really works. Like, you know, who am I to argue with what works? And that's, that's the part of me that sort of is to, is to acquiesce, so to speak, in what foreign systems are. Maybe there are, maybe there are countries where that's true, where the practice is sort of like totally untethered from the dead hand of the past and it works great and politics are, you know, functional and rights are protected or whatever the normative values are. Uh, you know, if so, uh, great. Uh, I guess part of the point here is I don't think that's a description of our practice. Our practice does have this recurrent focus on the past, albeit we fight about a lot about the past authority and these questions like adverse possession, but, but it's there. And I think there's a, some good reason for it, that that's what provides some kind, of, some kind of tether or some kind of constraint on the ability of modern government officials to, to make things up as they go along. Um, and then I also think about the, the question about can contracts bind future people or why does sort of past consent produce future obligation? And I guess I'd say I don't think past, I don't think past consent alone produces future obligation. The key ingredient is, is modern acquiescence. So for me, the key fact is that every government official, before they go around ordering people what to do or sending people to jail, takes this oath to the Constitution. The Constitution has a date on it. It says when it was written. And that that sort of, that act of acquiescence to this old dead document, uh, this old dead document that's been amended, is, is key. Uh, and the fact that our practice is to give that, is to treat the Constitution like it's, a, like it's real law, so to speak, uh, is, what, is what gives the otherwise uh, dead hand normative fight. Uh, I, I want to take uh, questions. Let me let me make one comment, which is not really you know an argument, but there there's a uh, I think there is a context in, which is close to the um, a group of people accepting something um, uh, that's written you know by for some other purpose uh, without taking the vote on it, and that's uh, Robert's rules of order in many, <laughs> in many contexts. Uh, people will just assert, you know, in some context where there's a group trying to make a decision. And there may be no prior moment in which the group has ever discussed Robert's rules of order, much less said, let's let's adopt them as being binding. Somebody might point out that Robert's rule of order has a, uh, a provision in, in there that says it's binding unless the organization has disclaimed it. But of course, if you're in the business of selling Robert's rules of order, that's a great provision, but there's no reason for anyone to give it any legitimacy. And yet, you could easily imagine in, in an organization where there's this problem that we have, you know, we everyone's screaming at each other, we need some rules, we haven't written them down, we don't have time to write them down. And then somebody says, well, according to Robert's Rules of Order, what we should be doing now is, you know, uh, voting on this point. And then people perhaps acquiesce without, uh, you know, and no one, no one ever cares who Robert was or <laughs> what his uh, purpose was besides making money from... Uh, creating this uh, device. Um, so are we ready for, for questions? Okay. Questions from the audience. <laughs> Maybe we should ask the audience questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or we, have, we have a question back here. Yes. Yeah. Um, so my understanding is not all originalists agree that like the private subjective intent of the public, you know, various boundaries is really relevant, but I think Scalia has made the move to kind of say the public understanding of the Constitution at the time of its adoption is what's, what's relevant. Um, I think that might answer to some extent some of the, some of the worries uh, about kind of very particular, uh, you know, biases of individuals governing. And uh, could, could you just comment on that, maybe an internal dispute of originalism and how you think that helps or doesn't help? Yeah, so I'll even say it's not even that much of a dispute at this point. The, the majority view is the view you described. So 
there's a sense in which now most people would say, just like most textualists would say of statutory interpretation, that like the reason the statute binds is because we care about Congress and its intent in enacting the statute, but for sort of legitimacy reasons and for workability reasons, the intent itself, we care about the what the document says, not like the secret brain contents of, of what the enactors were saying. So through the Constitution, we care about what's called its public meaning, what would a kind of reasonable person who'd read it have thought at the time. Uh, that's also because of the Constitution to be ratified by the public. So again, what James Madison sort of like privately, privately wrote in his notes shouldn't be considered dispositive. And then in a weird way, that's actually analogous sort of the Robert's Rules of Order idea, I think. The idea is that you should be able to pick up this document without knowing like who was James Madison and like you know what was his goal in promulgating this constitution and was he trying to make a buck or something else uh, and just be able to read it. But when you have something that's really really old, like just reading it turns out to be complicated. It doesn't really get us out of a lot of these problems because a the constitution makes a lot of like really contestable normative choices. Like the constitution designs to have separated powers and not a parliamentary system that leads to gridlock and all sorts of political problems we know about today. Uh, and the Constitution contains a bunch of like funny words that you have no hope of understanding if you don't nonetheless try to dig back into old stuff. So if you just tried to like guess what is the privilege or the writ of habeas corpus, uh, even on the basis of like a modern Fed courts book, uh, or a bill of attainder, or you know, the power to regulate commerce among the several states, uh, it'd be really, really hard without looking at a bunch of old history. So, in that sense, it, it creates a problem for us again. But I just say one word, uh, which will actually be about 10, 20. Um, but, um, it doesn't help us because the question is being governed by the intention of people in the 18th century. And the question of whether the people in the 18th century were you know, Madison or Jefferson or whether these were the ordinary people, I think it's better even to be governed by Jeff what Jefferson and Madison thought, because they were probably smarter than most of the other people. That <laughs> but it doesn't help in terms of legitimacy or, or instrumental consideration, it doesn't help us at all. Yes? Uh, Professor Bode, you mentioned that the fact that people who work in government have to take an oath this takes away from the dead hand element a little bit. I'm just wondering, is there any option as to whether you take the oath or not? Since there's no option, does that really do any work if you have to swear to, you know, live by this document before you can even start to work in government? Uh, so, so you do have an option to affirm rather than swear uh, if you have <laughs> religious or other obligations to oaths. But I take it that that doesn't really get around the issue. <laughs> Uh, no, it's, I mean, it's a contract of adhesion, right? The deal is, if you want the... Uh, the Constitution itself only requires this oath of, of government officers who rise to a certain level. I think we often do require it of other employees, and uh, your state bar will require it before you are allowed to become a lawyer. That's a, not something the Constitution requires. But no, it's an intentional package deal. So what the Constitution is saying is, uh, here, herein contained is the power to do things to private people that other people can't do to lock them up, to regulate their conduct, to adjudicate their disputes, to take away their property. And if you want this power, it comes at a, you know, it comes with strings attached. Uh, the question of whether that's sort of fair, I guess, you know, there's, there's a sense in which you could see that as coercive. Somebody would say, hey, I really wanted the power and I didn't want the strings. <laughs> um, uh, that's not a form of, uh, of sort of a, an argument I'm particularly sympathetic to, because I don't think that the government officials have like the natural right to the power. And so the you were titled to put strings on it, but um, but I think that's an important point. But but I think that this is, uh, in my view, it is totally irrelevant because 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 the oath I assume I don't know the oath is to the constitution, not to the original method of interpretation. So I don't deny that uh, I don't deny that people ought to you know uh, be faithful to the constitution and to the laws of the United States. Um, uh, in fact, if I did tonight, I would be kicked out of the country, I guess. But but, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it has nothing to do with uh, originalism, because originalism is not the only method of interpretation, I think. Yes. Mr. Carlin, you spoke about the legitimacy of being governed by the men who wrote the Constitution a couple hundred years ago. My question is, if you abandon originalism, it seems invariably to fall in just whatever the judge's judgment is at the moment. In, as Professor Bode said, given the particularly high bar for amending the Constitution, how is it more legitimate to throw away those supermajorities for the simple majority 
judges on a court that's interpreting the Constitution? No, this, this is a very, of course, very serious question, but, but um, we have to remember two things. First of all, um, a judges are not elected uh, simply from the sky. They don't land from the sky and become judges. There is a, a very elaborate process uh, in which they, uh, there is a kind of feedback between the general will of the people and, and the judges. Now, I don't say, I actually don't say whether it's good the judges will make decisions. I think it's good for the decisions. But here I didn't defend this view. Uh, after all, you could go to um, um, other methods in which uh, uh, you know, other perhaps other executive bodies will have power. You could go to, I guess it's called popular constitutionalism that has different kind of ways of understanding how the constitution ought to develop. And you have departmentalism. I show you my knowledge of American constitutional theory. Um, so you have all these me- you have all these other methods. And I think that the only thing I say is that the method of attributing the intention to these guys seems to me to be the least persuasive. At least the judges are, in a mitigated way, a reflect, reflection of our, uh, of, of our um, uh, uh, people because they're elected by, uh, I guess it's, uh, they are appointed by the, by the president and pro by the senate. And um, so, so there is a kind of feedback to what we think we believe and so on and so on. But Nobody, nobody, um, you know, has any impact on, and we cannot uh, decide tomorrow morning not to appoint Jefferson as relevant to the Constitution. We can't do this. We can't kick him out. He's stuck there forever and ever. And 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 I just don't see why. If anything, we have much greater impact on the judges as they are. Or you could choose other forms. I don't know, popular constitutionalism, departmentalism, all these kind of ideas that float in the air of constitutional theory. Um, so this question for Will, and your answer to the uh, question up here, you sort of pointed to the epistemic problems of trying to figure out what the original public meaning is or was. And it got me thinking that, I mean, doesn't that sort of undercut the whole enterprise? That is, if you compare trying to figure out what the original public meaning was, we can guess that we might get it right, but there's some probability there's sort of a pretty big variance uh, in terms of our estimate of what that meaning might have been. Probably a systematically larger variance than if we were to ask what the original, what the public meaning is today. Um, and so I wonder when you think about that, it doesn't mean that your method is really a risky method. It's quite likely we'll get something badly wrong compared to the uh, competitors out there. Yeah, so uh, I'm not sure, but let's. I'm not sure whether that whether there really is a higher variance. I think we people who people lots of the time make claims about what the public wants or what the meaning is today and have vast disagreement about it. And I'm not sure whether the variance would really be any different. But let's let's suppose that it would. Uh, I think I think you're right that the original meaning is often hard to know with an adequate degree of certainty. So to make originalism work, it's really important what the burdens of proof are and what you do in the spaces where you don't where you haven't met the burdens of proof and you don't know. Um, as it happens, that's where originalism and courses of performance and precedent all work together. So the originalist answer to those questions would have been, uh, if you're in the, the realm of variance where you don't have a great deal of certainty about what the meaning is, stick with precedent and stick with the current practice. Uh, only overthrow precedent or practice if you've met a fairly high confidence interval, exactly what we could talk about. Uh, a fairly high confidence interval the precedent and practice are wrong. Um, if you don't have that rule, I think you do You do have a much more dangerous system, and that actually is one thing that makes me not the same as all originalists. There are some originalists who will come in and say, you know, the text itself is the only thing that's law, and therefore, any time you suspect even like a 51% probability that a precedent or a practice is wrong, you've got to overthrow it. Uh, I mean, I, I, I admire the sort of fundamentalism there, um, but I, I do think that's wrong and dangerous and not what the Constitution requires for exactly those reasons. Um, kind of jumping off of that, I guess, it, obviously, you said that American constitutional law is different than uh, you know, other constitutions, forget other law. But is there any case where we have a law where even just the, we don't acknowledge that you know words evolve and that usually that's accepted as long as it's not like, oh, we just didn't use the word writ of a for about 300 years, it means something different? 
Um, you know, it's gotten from there to now. I don't know. I, I guess I'm just confused about why we would assume that we would, the public at that point would think that we would use their meaning. I mean, I can't imagine sitting here right now and saying, I'm going to, you know, technology changes things, life changes. We need to evolve and figure out how to deal with things. Why the public then would feel any different. Us. When it comes to defining terms. I, I want to say something that I think is, is very important. I don't deny that sometimes we have very good reasons to bind ourselves in the future. I mean, these things are known. Many of you may know Ulysses and the Sirens, the story. So, I mean, there are clearly cases in which it is very important for us to bind ourselves. There could be political context in which it is um, very important to bind ourselves. Um, like, I, I fully agree with this. The only thing that I'm a little bit puzzled is that we have to decide when to bind ourselves and when not. I think binding ourselves for so many, so long to a group which was so unrepresented is something that does not give me the strengths of conviction that this is the right context to, uh, to, to make this binding. So I guess, I guess just to give a couple examples to maybe... so. So the Constitution actually contains the phrase uh, domestic violence. Um, the Constitution says that the United States as a whole has to protect each state against domestic violence. I think most people understand. I mean, I think even today, uh, living constitutionalists would agree when reading that. It would be a mistake to just ask what's the public meaning of the phrase domestic violence. Like, that would just be, right, that would just be making a category error, right? And that's, like, the easiest one, and we can all, we can all laugh at it. Right? But, but then there might be something subtly similar going on with some of the other provisions. So if we see the words necessary and proper, and we think, oh, I know what necessary and proper mean, but actually they had some different technical meaning at the time, we'd want to know about that and, and make sure we weren't committing the same kind of pun with whatever. And then there are actually lots of phrases we worry about that with. Um, so that's, that's sort of possibility one. Luckily, the Constitution's also full of words that don't look like that, that, <laughs> that do seem to have, like, cruel and unusual or property, that seem to invite uh, changing circumstances and seem to tell you what kinds of changing circumstances matter, right? So to say, to say cruel and unusual punishments seems to invite both a, an idea that there are different standards for punishment, and also it's telling you it's not sort of an efficiency test, it's telling you it's not a test of what most promotes public safety. It's instead asking for some kind of set of circumstances about, you know, about cruelty. Uh, and I think that's also like an important, an important choice. So the choice of language can itself be a choice about when future circumstances matter and when they don't. I think that's how we write things even now. And doesn't that always require a level of the public deciding at any point? I mean, a certain amount of living constitutionalism, what cruel and unusual means at any point in time? With a phrase like cruel and unusual, absolutely. So that's a, you know, if the Constitution contains a phrase that invites, that invites living constitutionalism, then the originalist thing to do is to be a living constitutionalist. And you know, if your Constitution has a certain number of those phrases in it, that's part of what gives it legitimacy over time. I think that's part of why our Constitution's. Like arms is one of those phrases. Uh, sure. In the sense, I mean, I would say yes. Like in the sense of muskets. Uh, are not the only kind of arms that the Second Amendment protects. It would be actually kind of weird to think they were. Uh, or just like it would be weird to think property was limited to like cows and wheat uh, and didn't include airplanes and other and <laughs> internet files. So how do, this is one of the, how do we know that cruel and unusual is meant to be read as cruel and unusual at the time that it's inflicted as opposed to cruel and unusual at the time the Constitution is adopted so you go through and you say, you know, they, you could lop off the ears and brand people at the time, so that was, you know, permitted. Uh, I mean, so, so how, how do you know? Because there are, other, there are other things, I think, where we think we're not supposed to update. It's supposed to mean what was accepted then and not supposed to mean, it's not supposed to be expansive. Yeah, so this is where I think, I mean, this is where the history helps. So, the, I mean, the cruel and unusual punishment clause was debated, and had predecessors in England that were explicitly used to, that was explicitly borrowing from, bans on cruel and illegal punishments. And the British prohibition on cruel and illegal punishments was thought to change as the common law of England changed. And that, that was the way the cruel and unusual punishments clause was talked about, too. Uh, this, is, this is debated in the literature. There, is a, there, is, there are some originalists who say it's limited, just as Scalia says. It's limited to the things that were cruel and unusual at the time. Uh, 
with all due respect to Justice Scalia, I think he hasn't kept up with the scholarship in this field, uh, so he's wrong. But um, <laughs> I think I actually think that when uh, when when I speak with somebody and I say this is cool, this is cool. What I mean to say is that I believe this practice is cruel, but I also mean to say that if I'm wrong on this, it's part of what I mean to say. If I'm wrong on this, then this could be inflicted. Or if I say this is not cruel, and, and, and what I mean is there is something like quality out there. I have beliefs about it, but those beliefs can be wrong. And therefore, I think the natural way to understand when people put in a statute or in a constitution the terms uh, cruel and unusual is to interpret them as saying, we, have been, we want cruel and unusual practices to be prohibited, irrespective of what they are. We have some beliefs as to what they are, but our belief could be wrong. And that's a way to interpret these, structure, these uh, provisions. Um, I think because this is the way I understand the term cruel and unusual when I speak with uh, um, with Richard. Yeah. Uh, so let me just say, I mean, so the, the, there, there are a lot of terms that are that I think are like this. There occasionally are places where, for what strike me as arbitrary reasons, uh, the Constitution's not so interpreted. So uh, now here I'm going to use a term that's not in the Constitution. The Constitution says no uh, unreasonable searches or seizures, and in looking to the history uh, about whether you need a warrant to arrest someone in public, the court looks, finds a rule that says, well, it depends on whether the crime you're being arrested for is a felony or a misdemeanor. And if it's a felony and you're in public, you don't need a warrant. And on a misdemeanor, it's more complicated. Um, now, you, you could then at that point say, well, what was, a what was a felony at the time the Constitution was adopted? Be a very short-lived list of extremely serious crimes, um, but there the court doesn't says 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 it's it's more it's 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 whatever is later determined uh, to be a felony. And there it seems to me like there there would be a plausible argument that you know, if you're going to borrow the practice at the time, then the practice at the time should be if you're arresting a person for murder in public, you don't need a warrant. If you're assuming you have probable cause, you're arresting them for rape. You know, go down the list of things which the crimes which you could arrest them for without a warrant in public at, you know, at the time the Constitution's adopted. But but there's, there's anyway, there's, it seems like, I mean, to get to this question about are the, there, there's this idea that, that, that you're, you're limiting judges by um, Know, by having this originalism, but there's there quite a, there are a large number of interpretive moves that have to be made. I was going to point out, and apparently Justice Scalia isn't doing them right because he's not aware of the most recent scholarship. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I think the level of generality problem. It, it, if we accept that some kind of originalism is the right thing to do, the level of generality problem, along with the epistemic problem, are the two like hardest, most recurring things to deal with. Uh, I have lots of, you know, there's lots of stuff written about this. I have lots of views about them. So I think the unreasonable searches and seizures is a good example of this because, like, it's trying to borrow a common law rule, but then we ask, like, at what level of generality did the common law rule operate? And it is, but I think, and I think it is telling that the common law rule op operated at the, at the level of abstraction of felony, that rather than just having a list of crimes as the common law rule, the common law rule itself took into account the evolution and murder was not always the same kind of felony as it was later, but but those are hard and those are sort of hard and there's lots to say about each one. Justice Scalia knows these are hard and so he has come up with a solution that is not the best solution. Uh, his solution is to try to read things at the narrowest level of abstraction he can all the time. Uh, and the reason for that is because he has said that the rule of law is a law of rules and therefore that sort of the best to make law the best it can be, it should be as rule-like as possible. The sort of more common originalist view now, I'll just say, is actually written by a couple of former Scalia clerks, is the rule of law as a law of law. Uh, and they say that actually you should just take things at whatever level of generality the legal rules, serve them up. And sometimes that's their rules and sometimes those are standards. And it's just a Scalia's sort of most persistent anti-originalist move that he refuses to accept that sometimes the Constitution itself isn't as rule-like as he wants it to be. Uh, would that it were otherwise. So I may have misunderstood, but it seemed like both of you were relying for sort of, I guess, the ultimate philosophical 
legitimacy on the acquiescence of the modern politic. So I guess if, setting aside the impossibility of this, if we could have a referendum on which people vote on their method of interpretation and we're fully informed and all of that, is that sort of what we're trying to get at in this sort of argument about how we should decide this? No, because it could change tomorrow morning. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, we have to understand that um, when we decide on a method of interpretation, we have to decide it for our time. I actually don't think that the right way to look at it is to decide on a method of interpretation. I think the right way to do it is to appreciate the fact that the judiciary has some input on concerning what is reasonable and not reasonable from the public, that it is sensitive to what the public wants, but it's also sensitive to long-term values and so on and so on, more fundamental values of society, and, and there has to be some kind of balance about it. I don't think the public really knows and can predict what type of things will come about under one interpretation of another. I, I never, I think it's it's never good to assume the public can know them. Uh, so, um, and I, I think they, I mean, to vote on methods of interpretation rather than on an issue that people have you know, views about, that people have strong moral beliefs about, is, is not the right thing to do, and it's not the right way to do. Uh, yeah, I basically uh, agree with that, uh, with, with the idea that, that in the abstract we want to know what, what is the kind of collective practice. Now, it's so hard, like you said, sort of abstracting away from perfect information, but it's, it's so hard it may not be a real thing in the sense of lots of people's views about interpretation are mixed up with their views about the results. So they say both, you know, lots of people both believe in the text and believe in things that maybe the text can't really produce and what they would do if push came to shove on any given instance. Or lots of people believe in living constitutionalism, but only under the assumption that the judges will behave within some band of reasonableness. So, so it is a kind of complicated conditional question. But ultimately, yes, I think we could wake up tomorrow. I think we could wake up tomorrow. And just like we could wake up tomorrow, have a massive referendum, and abolish the Constitution, just like we abolished the Articles of Confederation, we could do it halfway. We could say we're keeping the Constitution, but we're keeping it subject to you know this new implicit uh, consensus or old implicit consensus about what it means. I have a question, which is so for, for you. So your version, as you, you have you've distinguished yourself from what you at one point called fundamentalist uh, uh, originalist, and uh, and I wonder what. What degree? How much do you think rides on this in a way? Which is, you know, when you when you put, you know, originalist on a, a, a spectrum and you say, well, you know, you you recognize that we should interpret some terms as standards and we should give weight to practice and text independent of what the original public meaning was. Um, and then if you find someone who says I'm not an originalist, they, for the most part, would give weight to the text. They would. And they may say that they're happy to consider original public meaning as, as you know, one of the interpretive uh, uh, pieces of evidence to go into the hopper with, with uh, other things. And if there's, you know, um, and even when one is applying uh, that originalism, you have you have things like uh, the degree, the, the level of generality. And I kind of wonder, um, you know, what what is the necessary difference in results? between being your kind of originalist and being a non-originalist who nonetheless says, you know, at, uh, you know I, I, consider, I consider all sorts of things, and that would include original public meaning when it's clear. Yeah, so I think, I think there are, I mean, I think there is a lot more overlap between originalists and, and everybody else than there used to be, and this is part of what's changed about originalism, but I do think I think there is there's an important gap, at least in at least in method, that will lead to differences in some cases uh, between the kind of Hopper method, <laughs> the kind of all things considered method, versus the kind of originalism with weight to other stuff method. So, and, and they are one is what do you do when the text is really clear? So, if you're an originalist and the text is really clear, that's like Chevron step zero. Uh, the stuff in the other and the Hopper doesn't matter. Um, Whereas, I think if you're a Hopper person. Like, the fact the text is really clear is just one more factor to be considered. Um, that's a good difference between what the government argued in the recent appointments case, 
which was that it doesn't matter if the text is clear, practice wins anyway. And what the court, per Justice Breyer, actually said, which is that the text has to be ambiguous before we can look at the course of practice and liquidation. Like that, that difference. Now, maybe in practice it's so easy to find something ambiguous that at least if you're not operating in good faith, we can make the two things look the same. I'm not sure. But, like, but that's at least one difference in, in theory that, that would produce a difference in result if, if people really adhered to it. And the other is what kinds of stuff do you look at? Like what kinds of stuff goes in the hopper? So I think to be an originalist about what goes about the, this is to the stuff, the, the other stuff, precedent, practice, et cetera, are themselves things that were part of the legal practice at the time of the founding that are baked into the, sort of, or that are the background of the text, stare decisis, you know, et cetera. Whereas if you're a pure hopper person, it's, a, it's just a matter yeah, of chance. <laughs> I did use Hopper very good. I, I would say a pragmatist like Richard Posner is is would be the thing. Yeah. So if you're if you're a if you're a one factor among many person, yeah. right? Then the other factors it would just be pure coincidence if your factors happen to line up with the kinds of factors that Madison listed in his bank speech. Um, now it might well be as it happens that they are kind of similar, but. Um, yeah. question. So uh, both of you have kind of referred to it, even directly obliquely, about getting the results right, about how certain methods might be better or worse because you get to what you want out of constitutional interpretation. But I was just wondering if do you two agree on what that is, or is, or is <laughs> I wanted to hear a little more directly what exactly when you're assessing a constitution or method of interpretation means that yes, it's doing it right. No, I mean I don't know if you agree on the substance, uh, but um, someone generally has to disagree with me. But, um, but um, I don't think it matters. Uh, I think I think that sometimes it's uh, we may even agree that this procedure, that a particular procedure, is more likely to bring about right results without agreeing about the results. We may we may think that overall this procedure will be best. Uh, without agreeing on what best means. And I think this is uh, sufficient. Uh, and uh, I think that a lot of the discussions in, uh, for instance, the Federalists uh, have to do with the fact that uh, certain institutional structures are more likely, for instance, they, the, the obsession, right, right obsession, and I don't mean your obsession in and the obsession of the founding fathers um, against uh, factionalism and sectarianism, very strong, very strong, very strong fear of this. I think, and designing institutional mechanisms uh, that will overcome uh, factionalism and, and, and sectarianism, and so, on, so on. very carefully designing them. And without, without, I don't need to agree with what they substantively, substantively wanted to do. And yet, agree that this institutional scheme is very good in preventing, uh, or not very good in preventing uh, uh, Yeah, I think I actually agree with most of that. Uh, I, I would just add, and maybe this is that sort of what you want out of a constitution and what you want out of constitutional interpretation might be very different questions. So, you know, what do I want out of the constitution? The same things everybody else does, like liberty, equality, prosperity. World peace, uh, <laughs> like and our constitution's not great, but okay at producing some of that stuff. What do I want out of constitutional interpretation? Is I want some method for figuring out what choices what choices the constitution made that are different from the question of, or at least rule above the question of, what does the interpreter want in the world? I have actually a puzzle. Maybe maybe you could help me out. I gather the debate in the United States between between originalist and uh, living constitutionalism is also a debate about uh, between conservatives and uh, libertarian on one side and uh, and uh, kind of liberal on the other side. Am I right that this? Now I am puzzled why. I mean, why why is it the case? Because this need not necessarily be the case. Uh, I definitely am quite sure that the founding fathers were not libertarians. I find it quite amazing that libertarians are kind of, you know, kind of like this idea of interpretation when the founding fathers clearly were not. 
Um, I don't know if the founding fathers were conservative in our sense of the world. I doubt this as well, actually. But um, I just want to know why there is a strong correlation between substantive politics, uh, liberalism versus uh, uh, conservative and libertarianism on the other hand, and the method of interpretation. You've already offered one explanation. Fundamentalism. Let me try it. So let me say, I am actually not sure the correlation is as true of the kind of originalism, the sort of second generation originalism we were just talking about. So Justice Kagan says, I am an originalist, if you mean, and then she defines originalism the way I do. Uh, and she's not a conservative. Um, so I do think there's less, less of a correlation in this sense. Some of it, I think, is, is built up around specific critiques about the Supreme Court during a period where the court was seen as being very liberal. And a group of people who were very unsatisfied with it wanted some grounds on which to criticize it, and originalism became a political and academic rallying cry for what was wrong with various judicial decisions. But I think a lot of that's short-lived. So like Hugo Black, in my view, was an originalist too, and certainly looked like a, I mean, looked like a textual fundamentalist and wrote like many, many opinions that uh, an originalist would be proud of, I think. And he was definitely not a conservative or a libertarian. Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.